Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast, where we use calisthenics to gain bodyweight strength, build muscle to look like a bodybuilder, and unlock the mobility to move freely. All right, so Philip, could you please explain the big five movements which have been popularized by the Mindful Mover? So we have um, the planche push-up, the one-arm chin-up, the single-leg squat, or some sort of squat, whatever kind of squat you prefer, the front lever row, and the handstand push-up. And if you're working on or towards those five movements, we've noticed that you gain, uh, you make carryover gains to just about every other movement you can think of, uh, and probably several that you can't think of as well. And it's really cool because if you have limited training time, by working on or towards those five, you're gaining other things like one-arm push-ups, your deadlift, you'll probably find that going up. You'll probably find like your overhead press going up with weights, other bodyweight uh, other body weight movements, et cetera, et cetera. Is this the free gains concept that you guys are talking about? That's exactly what it is. It's the free gains concept in action. So basically, you know, until we have unlimited lifespans and unlimited time, we only have a somewhat uh, a reserved amount of time and energy that we can dedicate towards training. But at the same time, I want to make gains in absolutely everything that is out there, of course, right? So what we found is by working those big five, you can actually make games just about everything, even though you're not spending uh, all your time training, even though you're not using all those exercises. Right. And what made you come to the decision with those movements in particular? What, what I mean is what makes those a good exercise? So we noticed that we, we kept trying to figure out basically a ratio. So like how much time would our training take and how many exercises would we make gains on for that time? And so we played around with different um, fives. You know, we, we, we took one five out, we put another five in. And the idea was to see, okay, which one is going to result in the most other exercises improving? And after we tried that out, like a, a wide variety of them, we found that those five right there gave the widest range of gains. For now, I mean, if we find something else, of course, we're going to release it. We'll tell you guys, you know, like, oh, hey, we found a new big five that works even better. So we're not really attached to this five at all, of course, but it's just the one that we've tested so far and found that it has the widest range of games. Awesome. And that's not just on yourself. That's been on hundreds and thousands of students over the years, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that's other people testing it too. And we, we love having, we tell everyone, you know, try it out, see what free games you make. And people keep reporting that they're making free games as well. So uh, we like that until we figure out a better big five. And then at that point, we'll swap right over. Perfect. What would you say the big five are for mobility and flexibility? Mm, so I really like split squats. Uh, I like the Jefferson curl. Um, the like, like a basically a pigeon stretch, but you're not using your hands. Um, like an internal rotation stretch, which is like sit in a squat and you bring your knee down inward and a middle split and i've seen that if people generally work on those right there then you have probably more than enough ability to go throughout your day like that's 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 really good if i if i could only pick two i'd probably just pick the split squat and the jefferson curl the most important question is why did you stop training so much oh so i was training um like you no know, six times a week and you know, I was spending a lot of time on it. Uh, but as I got older, that wasn't working as well 
for my recovery. And I also ended up with a uh, chronic autoimmune disease, uh, disease called ulcerative colitis. So it's like basically inflammation of your intestines. And I noticed like, you no, know, my body doesn't re uh, recover from that high volume of training any longer very well. But what was great is at the time, I just ended up actually discovering that working out really intensely, really hard, but then taking a lot of days off, I could handle that. So I couldn't handle high frequency as well anymore, but I could handle high intensity and you know, pretty decent volume and then take the rest of the time off and be totally fine. So then I said, no, hey, well, let me try this out on other people and see if, you know, if it works on them. And people were like, hey, this does work and it saves time for other stuff. So whenever people come and they say, you know, oh, I've got like, you know, 10 kids, I run 50 businesses, I'm CEO of them all and I have no time. Is that the difference between an amateur training and a professional? What are the different expectations? Yeah, so the, the average person, usually they're going to have a job and it's usually not a training job. So they have to go to that job. And then after they're done that job, they have to like come home and maybe do something like, you know, uh, outside of their, their, their work. Like that is still kind of work. Like maybe their kids have homework they have to help their kids with that. Maybe they have a spouse that needs their time. They probably need to make some food and eat it. Otherwise you die. Especially an athlete, they can spend you know, their day training and then they go back to sleep. They wake up and they train again and then they get paid for it. But a lot of people don't have that luxury. So we try to make sure that, you know, when people come to us and they're like, you know, they're kind of a normal person in the amateur training, that we take that into account so that they can make gains while still being able to uh, have time for all those other important things in life as well. That's the sign of a good coach right there, guys. Someone that considers the context of the individual as opposed to the, the perfect situation that might not fit the individual. So that's why I wanted Thank to feel on the show. That's why we're having this, uh, this good chat today. Thank you so much. Now, you used to be heavily invested in the movement culture. How has your opinion changed over the years on that oh, environment? Man, back when I was in it, I thought movement was absolutely everything. I thought it was so important. And if you weren't moving, then you were just missing out. But now it's like my stance on that has softened so much. I had a friend who, you know, like, because the idea was, you know, when you're moving, you're nourishing your brain and all that stuff. And of course, you know, partly that's true, of course. He Then he showed me some animals that could do a lot of the movements I was working on. And some of them are like, better. Like, I, I seen like, a dog handstand walking. <laughs> I've seen, like, kangaroos fighting. And, uh, you know, I've seen seals that can bounce balls on their nose and pass them back and forth to each other, basically play volleyball. And it was like, well, I'm not sure. I think movements definitely important but i don't think it was as important as i thought it was back when i was in the movement culture back then i thought it was like six to eight hours a day important now i think it's like you know good to be active important but you don't have to dedicate your whole life to it in fact you probably shouldn't and you probably shouldn't make the mistakes i made back when i was uh dedicating my entire life to movement culture yeah, because I, for the average person to dedicate so much time to it when they're not deriving any benefit from it financially, uh, yes. progressing their business or having an impact on, on other people as examples, as we've been discussing in this conversation, it just robs you of the opportunity for other things in your life, other hobbies, uh, social stuff, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, that, 
that literally was happening to me and my wife, Martina. Like we were just spending all of our time moving. We were, you know, I, I, I was a huge gamer before. I used to love gaming. I stopped gaming. I know I stopped doing basically anything. And if you were trying to talk to me uh, outside, like, you know, just, if we met up at a store and wanted to talk, I could talk to you about movement, but nothing else. So it just, it wasn't really like, it felt very one-track minded. It didn't feel very healthy mentally wise to, uh, to be doing like living like that. I find that transition is pretty normal for most people as, as they get a bit older into their mid twenties, late twenties, you just realize that expanding your, your skill set or just your ability to understand different topics, different interests makes you a more interesting human being. And yeah. I'd almost argue that it makes you actually better at your job because now you're connecting different concepts and applying it to what you love most, which deep down is, is the training side, but you're not actually spending as much time in it. I, I would fully agree with you. Like you, you have the ability to, to relate to other people so much better. Like you have you know, kind of a background, like, you know, maybe someone comes and they, they say that they work in um, like finance, for example, and I, I don't do a lot of stuff in finance, but I've learned a little bit about it. So it's like, oh, I can actually have a conversation with them and get to know that person. I can connect to other people now as opposed to just being like, so let's talk about movement or I don't know what to talk about. Interesting. And it comes down to that 80-20 principle as well, where you can invest most of your energy into what matters, training smarter, not harder. And you realize that you don't actually need that much time to learn the basics of essentially anything. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I've, I've noticed that with, that has that, like I said, that 80-20 concept that shows up in so many different fields. Like I'm learning um, Spanish as well. And there's a, a part in um, a book I was reading where it goes over a couple of phrases where if you learn those phrases, you can basically swap in like like an ad lib thing. Like a, you put a word in where it needs to go in. You can basically speak somewhat decently fluently with just a few phrases. And that goes for just about anything. You can do that for like language. You can do that for finance. You can do it for training. It works in a lot of places. That, that concept is just gold. But the problem is we've got a lot of smart people listening to this and most of the time people are aware of this, but then overcoming it is a different story. My question to you is how did you successfully overcome the insecurity of changing your mindset to your training method? How did you go from doing six plus hours a day of training to how you approach things today? You know, what really helps me with that is I just remember like, I am only human and I'm not going to be able to know 100% for a fact if doing that extra set of that movement is going to result in better gains or if it's just going to push me over the edge a little bit and then I'm going to actually make worse gains or if it's going to be the exact perfect amount. And since I can't know that exact number for each individual person, I say, you know what, I don't worry about it. As long as I'm making gains from session to session to session, and I'm staying off the pain train, as we call it, then eventually I'm going to reach, you know, where I'm trying to reach. But uh, knowing further than that, it's really, it's really difficult to know because, you know, you might make the perfect amount of optimal volume for that training week, but then, you know, you find out that your kids are on drugs and your spouse is cheating on you and your dog runs off with your cat. Well, that amount of volume is no longer optimal because now you're probably really stressed out. So it's just like if I just keep that in mind, I worry about like not trying to be perfectionist with it, just trying to think about making gains from session to session. I find I don't worry too much about it. 
that's a good way to look at it. Having the humility to be aware that you're not in control of every single input output, like some type of robot. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot more flexible than that. And that's really good advice for people listening just to not be so rigid in your approach and just avoid that, I guess, sunk cost fallacy of when you're invested into something, not being too attached to it, but being aware of stepping away from it, distancing yourself from the situation and just taking more of a long-term approach instead of just in, in the moment. Yeah. I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, you know, honestly, one of the things that might help you make even better gains is if you stop trying to optimize it like as hard as possible, you relax. Now you might sleep better. Your, your stress levels will go down. Your cortisol goes down. <laughs> all of a sudden yeah. your recovery goes higher. <laughs> it's interesting how that works, isn't it? There's almost an inverse relationship between how bad you want to improve something, how mm-hmm. hard you're trying and, and the actual result. There tends to be a sweet <laughs> spot of, of trying seven to eight out of 10, but not, yeah. not absolutely destroying yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There, I mean, you, you got to give it your full effort, of course. But then if you give it too much, all of a sudden you start burning out or getting injured. I've had that happen so many times where it's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to train this movement like five times a week and get injured. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to train this movement at all now. Now I'm going backwards. I, I had a friend actually who um, he said that he had a friend and he said, well, his friend was a gymnast. And he said, you know how we know who's going to be the strongest gymnast uh, in, our, in our team? The person who is able to keep training and not get injured they're going to be the strongest person because they're just going to put the time in and be the strongest. So I, I really like that. I try to think about it like as in like, okay, how can I make sure I'm making gains, but muscle staying away from going over the, the line, getting injured and not being able to train in the first place. Why is this a problem that so many of us have, Phil? Because I've, <laughs> I've gone through this, you've gone through this. Why is this such a problem? Is it our personal desire to improve exceeds our expectations or is it the pressure from the outside? What, what do you think? I, I think, you know, we, we generally have that idea that if we do more and we're going to just, it's going to, it's going to come, it's going to work. Like all of our, we need to do is put in the hard work. So I think it comes from a really good place, honestly, where it's just people say, I'm going to put the work in so I can get what I want. The only problem is like, you know, that works in some places, but with our bodies, our bodies have to kind of do that whole recovery thing sadly, and we don't have a Wolverine-like healing abilities. So <laughs> until we get those, it kind of just like, we have to kind of take it at the time that the body recovers, which isn't always at the same speed that we'd like to go with when it comes to training. The interesting thing is it's almost naturally built in as well, because as beginners, you make rapid progress session to session, intermediates every week or two. And as you become advanced, it's more in a monthly or longer period. So mm-hmm. In essence, naturally, we're forced in a way to become aware of this, or as you said, get injured or burn out. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. In the past, you've posted on social media that you had a form of bigorexia, so wanting to get as big and muscular as possible. What has been your experience with that and how did you overcome it? So, yeah, I definitely had the bigorexia. I wanted to get to 200 pounds and to, wow. give, you, <laughs> yeah, to give you an idea, um, I just went to my doctor and they told me I'm five foot seven. I thought it was five foot eight, by the way, but they told me I'm five foot seven. So I, I, I missed that inch there. 
and I got to 187, uh, but that's also, again, when, like, my health started declining. I was, I was eating a lot during that time, and I was training so many days a week, working really, really hard. I wanted to get to 200. I really wanted to do a one-arm chin-up at 200 pounds, but I uh, ended up going back down, and that's, uh, that's where I left, left that. So, like, the, the ulcer colitis that I got at that time, that basically just smacked the, the bigger bigorexia right out of me. It was kind of forced. Do you find from your experience that people are forced to make a change as opposed to proactively being like, this is an issue, I should probably change it? I noticed that. Yeah, exactly. Like, I noticed like, when I started telling, because I eventually wrote, like, guys, like, no, I have the ulcer colitis thing going on. And a lot of people said, you know, I, honestly, I was trying to get bigger too. And then I started getting digestive issues. And then I, they were, some people said I kept going and then it got worse. Or some people said, oh, no, I, from right there, I, I went backwards. But I noticed like a lot more people experienced it than I thought. I thought I was just like one person on an island with a really special story. Then I find out, no, a lot of people have that same story. It was crazy. It's almost like you have to go through that for yourself to unpack all the other elements of what's going on. So maybe the deep cause behind why you want to do that and realizing that it's not going to bring you the fulfillment that you think that that's going to. I, I thought it was going to bring me all the fulfillment in the world, but then I later realized it's like, you know, I honestly, I just, I, I'll be happy being smaller and just feeling better. And being able to do the stuff when I'm still like, you know, 80, 90, or in this case, being alive to be 80 or 90. These days, what would you say your favorite training split is? Really liking full body. So I used to use sometimes, um, when I first started off, I was using like a straight legs bent. And then later I started using upper lower. And then later I started using full body. And what, what I could do nowadays is I could do like some sort of a, like a squat, followed by like a push, followed by a leg curl followed by a pull. And I've noticed that if I use like those with accommodating resistance, I'm able to get my heart rate pretty high, almost as high as when I would like, you know, go sprinting. But at the same time, I'm able to keep the intensity high with the workout. And that's really cool. Cause it's like, oh, hey, I'm getting, I'm able to get my cardio and the strength training both pretty intensely. That's usually not something you can combine together at those intensities, but it, it's working really nicely. So that full body is my favorite, but has to be my favorite. And what training frequency per week with that split? So for me personally, I do once every eight days. I've noticed that I can recover from that and be totally fine. And for most of my trainings, it's like once a week. Um, some do seven, some do eight. Some of them have just taken off like, you know, two weeks at a time and come back and they're like, yep, still stronger. So as long as you work really, really, really intensely though, of course. So I'm making like every rep has to basically make you die. I'm going to play devil's advocate for the people that are listening. They would be absolutely shocked that you can make progress on that low of a frequency. <laughs> yeah. Give me your arguments against that, Bill. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I thought the exact same thing when I, when I first heard of that, even training with that low frequency, I was like, that can't work. It can't. But then, you know, with the ulcer colitis, I had to try it anyway. So I was like, well, let me just let me just give it a shot and see if it works. So the first day, of course, well, I was like, you know, since I have only one day to train, I'm going to go all out. So, so I did, so I was like, you know, I did like 15 sets. So <laughs> so that worked, of course. Yeah. But then over time, I was like, OK, let me start trying to bring it down, 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 down to a more reasonable amount of volume. That's not like FOMO based. And I still noticed that as long as the intensity was high, 
then the gains would still come in. Just the, the real point there is that the, the intensity that we're using, it, it's like, it's almost like you're getting multiple workouts in that one workout because we keep the intensity really high during those reps. I get you. There's an inverse relationship between frequency and intensity. So you're on the extreme end of the spectrum, very low frequency, but very high intensity. Yes, and yes, yes. It's interesting because I've read your stuff over the years on Mindful Mover, Philip, and you've identified that a lot of people tend to fall into the reverse trap doing extremely high frequency, but then their intensity suffers because they're training so often and they can't recover. It's just my opinion, but I feel like using um, high intensity is really, really it's a lot easier. It's a lot, you don't have to think that's hard because what you do is basically you work really maximally hard and then you recover until you're able to do that performance, but a little bit better. And your body will tell you when you're recovered because you'll go back to the workout and you'll be able to do better or you won't and you'll have to take more days off. You know, so I find like that was really, really, really easy to figure out. Whereas, you know, with the frequency, you got to make sure you're adding in deloads and everything or making sure you're managing your volume and it's a little bit easy just like we said earlier to get kind of uh enthusiastic about one's recovery abilities and, and overshoot it all so i think it's so important to like you know make sure that you know you're you're handling that but if, if you're someone who's kind of like uh like myself who might be a little bit too uh enthusiastic about the recovery abilities just using high frequency and then saying i'm not going to go back until i'm going to able to be able to train harder than that it works really nicely, I think. I really like that simplistic approach to training and recovery because you're essentially guaranteeing that by the time that you return to a workout, you're going to be in a good position to progress. Because yeah. I know that a lot of people who are on a higher frequency approach, by the time you get to mid to late week, generally you're not in a position to beat your previous effort. And yeah. is that a sign of being able to make long term gains? I, I agree. It's like, you know, you're, you're feeling beaten down by that time. You're kind of like, you know, you're, you're working and you have to, you have to take a, a deload anyway. It's like, well, why don't you just try resting and recovering until you're ready to come back. And you know, the nice thing about that is you save time. You can go do something else and come back to it. And bam, you know, you find out your gains are there. What is your perspective on bulletproofing joints and prehab? <laughs> so I think it, it's like one of those things where if you are the kind of trainee that where you don't have to go and train again tomorrow, like you, you're on your own schedule, then I think you can basically use your recovery days as your joint bulletproofing. So like if I work out today, I'm not going to train again until next week. So I'm going to come back again when, next week when I'm feeling good, I'm recovered, I'm ready to go. Now, if I'm somebody who has to be in the gym tomorrow, then it's a little bit different. If I have a coach who's yelling at me and he's like, Philip, you need to be in the gym tomorrow. Or if I'm an athlete who has like certain situations in their sport or who has to be at their uh, on the field or, you know, in the um, on the court, whatever they do, then I think prehab may be more useful for those people, depending on what they're doing. But if you have the time to recover, you can just basically take all the time off, come back when you're feeling good, and then train again. And I've been doing that for about three years, and I haven't been injured now a single time. With respect to warming up, is it possible to prevent injury 
Is that a fact or is that fiction? I'll tell you that for me, what I've been doing, I haven't warmed up in about three years, I think as well. And I just basically go load up the whatever I'm the weight or the single squat or the workout I'm doing. Just, and I just go for it right then and there. And I have been totally fine, even in 19 degree Fahrenheit weather, working out outside. Totally cool. But my disclaimer is that I am doing that with strength training, which we know is pretty straightforward. Like I'm not changing angles or anything like that. I'm not like trying to work against a, an opponent or anything like that. It's simply um, slow move. And that there are slow movements as well, since I'm using a company resistance. So like, you know, I'm not bouncing at the bottom of a squat. I'm, I'm lowering down very slow. I'm going up and it's, it's a grinding movement the entire time. Um, so it's like a controlled environment and it's no like high speed impacts. And that's where I don't bother warming up. Now, I tell my trainees if they want to warm up, it's not a problem. Go ahead and go ahead and warm up. I'm just saying they, don't, they might not have to if they want to try that out. The other thing, too, is if you're going to try out like, you no, know, doing the no warm up thing, like, don't just go from like I squat 500 pounds after 10 warm sets to doing saying, I'm going to squat 500 pounds with no warm up. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how I did it. And that's not how you should do it either. You should start off, you know, maybe just drop your first warm up set. So if you usually do the bar, and then 135, and then 225. Start off with just trying to do, okay, maybe start off with the 135, then the 25, then the, no, the next 315. And then next workout, maybe try starting at like 155. And the next workout, maybe try starting at like 185 and seeing what you can do from there. So, you know, it's something to test out as long as you're doing what we're kind of saying what we're doing here, which is minimum effective dose. We're doing the, you know, slow controlled movements. We're not doing a sport where it requires lots of changing of direction or an opponent. In, in that case, you can try it out. It's interesting how you get two schools of thought, mainly. There tends to be the camp of doing tons of warm-up, tons of active, activation stuff, or you get people like yourself and most other people with experience who warm up essentially for the movement they're doing to their mm-hmm. working sets, and, and that's the extent of things. From our conversation so far, it almost seems like if you feel the need to do an extensive warm-up, you might be under-recovered because you need to, in a way, trick or coax your body into feeling ready. Yeah, that's exactly what we've kind of like come to the conclusion of too, where it's like, if you really need that extensively long warm-up, you might be training at a frequency where you're not fully recovered from last session. You're coming in, you're still achy, you're still feeling tight from last session. No, well, then... Yeah, sure. Maybe do a warm up if you want, if you really want to train that session, but also consider that you could recover a little bit longer. And then when you're feeling kind of fresh and loose and you know, we can move again, then maybe try your workout and that might be good. So on that school of thought, how important are structural balance exercises? I'm talking things like Cuban rotations and external rotation movements. Are they necessary for people that aren't injured or are they even useful if you want to improve performance? I think that it's similar to the prehab one. So if you're a trainee who is just working on trying to get strong and it's going to take the time that you need to recover on your off days and everything, then I've found that you don't really need them. In fact, I've even found like, for example, my cube rotation, this has gone up for free with the big five movements. I can still cube rotate half my body weight. I don't work on it or anything like that. So 
I found that works really solid. But if I was, say, someone like um, a baseball pitcher who needs to be able to throw a ball at 100 miles per hour and needs to be able to repeat that, um, like, you know, 100 times in one game and then needs to repeat that again, like, in two days, then I, I might say, yeah, we might need some experimentation work because your rotators might need to get stronger specifically for what you're doing there. So, like, you know, whatever, any kind of... Um, like lack of prehab or like you no know, structural balance exercises that we do, we're always disclaimering it with like, just remember guys, we're training minimum effective dose. We're training like, you no know, once a week, there's lots of recovery. If you are an athlete who needs to come in to train before you feel ready, or if you're someone who's training a lot, a lot, a lot, and you're not really like getting your full recovery in those things, it's more, I don't know at that point, it might, it might be actually beneficial. The reason why I asked that question is because there's been certain strength conditioning coaches over the years who have said, unless you can do X amount of your body weight for X reps on a Cuban rotation, you're basically going to fall apart. And <laughs> and die. That's, that's not always the case, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't found that to be true still. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of times those, those coaches are oftentimes working with athletes so I think they're kind of like kind of basing what they're saying on athletes. Um, I noticed like a lot, if you look at, if you look at anything like a sport coach writes, you always got to remember that they're talking about sport stuff. So like, you know, it doesn't always apply to the everyday average person who might not need to be able to keep and rotate half their body weight. With all of these different movements, exercises, recommendations, this is good, this is bad, you should do this, you should not do that. How do we avoid exercise FOMO, fear of missing out? Oh, yes, I love that. <laughs> fear of missing out, that's the that's thing that makes a whole bunch of stuff goes in into people's programs. I think the main thing is to just basically test out and see if you need that exercise. That's what I say all the time. So like when... We do the big five and talk about how there's carryover to other movements. So what we try to do is, okay, I'll test a movement. I'll see what's my max strength with that movement. Then I'll work on my big five for, you know, next month or two. And then I'll retest that movement and see as the big five got stronger, did that other movement also get stronger? Now, if that other movement got stronger, then great. I won't bother working on it because I already improving on it. If that movement didn't get stronger, then I'll ask myself, okay, now would adding that movement in be worth the time it takes to do? So something, for example, like a Nordic leg curl, the big five, we haven't found it gives carryover to Nordic leg curls. So now the question is, can I add it in? Well, in my quad set workout I talked about earlier, where I do like squat, um, push, leg curl, pull, it fits in nicely because I need a break for my upper body when I swapped, I swap over from um, doing the push to doing the leg curl to doing the pull. So it gives my upper body a break. So I, I put it into the workout there and just wouldn't take me much extra time. Now, if you're doing something else though, like that would take you more time, it's kind of a, of a question for that person. Like, you know, do you want to spend that extra time doing that movement? Is it worth it to you? If your goal is to set a Guinness World Record of, you no, know, 100 one-arm push-ups, then you should probably train one-arm push-ups. Seeing how a exercise improves your major compound movements yeah. and that's the best sign of if it's worthwhile in the in the bigger picture sense of things because 
if you start to add too many movements, you lose awareness of what is helping what, and you probably lose the confidence in your ability to put effort into something and see a return. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's exactly what happens. Like you lose, like we said, you don't know what's giving what now you're like, if you have all these different exercises in your program, you don't know which ones of those deserve all your time and which ones of those kind of like don't really deserve your time. So when that happens, like let's say you get to a point where you're strong, right? But you've used 10 different pushing exercises. Well, now you don't know which one you can kind of just like keep in and maintain. You, you can get to work on all 10 of them now. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of stressful, right? But if you kind of tailor it down and see which one of those are needed and which ones aren't needed, then you're like, okay, great. I can maintain my strength with just those, those three exercises, not those 10 that I thought I needed before. The biggest takeaway I would recommend is look at what most coaches are recommending. If there's someone that is saying something that's extremely left of field and they're saying it with 100% confidence, I would be very, very wary of that advice. I absolutely agree, especially when you see something like really, really far out there with, like you said, 100% confidence. Like, you know, (laughs) I I used to be really, really confident about – I used to be 100% confident about a lot of things in the past. I had a lot of confidence about what stuff I was saying. Now when I look back on it, I'm like, why was I so confident in that? That was completely wrong. It's difficult because people want reassurance. People want clarity. And if you have a leader or a coach who is saying something, this is the way to do it, people will flock and gravitate towards that. But like most things in life, there is no one way to do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we really like that black and white. Everything is kind of like set in stone, but there's so many, there's so much nuance in there. And even like, you know, people are, people are, uh, are different. So every, the way everyone reacts to a certain thing is going to be different. So we always say, you know, like, like I said earlier with the big five, like if tomorrow I find out that, uh, that a, a different series of exercises works, I might find out that shake weights give you a full plans for free games. Well, then, guess I, don't what know, I'll say. I don't know if you can recommend that on this podcast, <laughs> Phil. I gotta gotta end this conversation oh, now, mate. Man, unfollowed on won't post this. It's not gonna go live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a that's to say like you know if I find out that it does and I'll, guess what I'll say? I'll say I was wrong. I found out something new guys. I updated yeah. it. Like, I'm only human. <laughs> Could you explain to me the gains with chains concept? Oh, yes, absolutely. So when you work out and you make gains, it's important to remember, how exactly am I going to maintain those gains? I worked on the one-arm handstand for, <laughs> I think, like, so I worked on a one-arm hand, uh, two, sorry, a two-arm handstand for six months. And then I, for the one-arm handstand, it took me about a year and three months to be able to hold a solid uh, one-arm handstand for 10 seconds with my feet straddled. And then in another year, I was able to hold with my feet together for about 10 seconds. And that was the gains. Then I didn't realize, though, that the one-arm handstand had a chain. The chain was that if I wanted to keep that one-arm handstand, I needed to train it basically almost every day of the week. And when I found out that I wasn't willing to do that, well, the gain, which is the one-arm handstand, it went away. So now I can no longer one-arm handstand at all. I tried the other day just to see if I could, and it's not there at all. Like, it's almost like I didn't even train one-arm handstands. And it's just like, what? So I always tell my trainees, like, you know, make sure that whatever you gain, 
it doesn't take a lot of time to maintain if you don't want to commit to that the rest of your life. So like our big five, for example, I know I can do that like less than once a week and still make gains. And if I want to maintain it, I find I can do it like, you know, once every two weeks, and I'm still fine with that. But on the other hand, something like uh, the one arm handstand, I didn't find that. And I'll tell people with that with diet as well, too. Like if you're trying to get bigger, make sure you do it in a way that's not going to require you to eat like 5,000 calories every day. That's going to get really expensive and really annoying eventually. That's the major difference between skill training and strength training. You could debate, depending on the complexity of the movement, how much balance and coordination there is, skill training requires more practice, more frequency to maintain and improve, whereas these gross strength patterns tend to stick around longer. Yes, yes. I've noticed the exact same thing. It's just like, you know, you, you, my, my strength training things, those, those stick very, very nicely. I noticed even, even among skills, like, you know, like, like you're saying, certain skills are even more, um, are like more or less solid. So like, I found the one arm handstand, like of all the skills I've ever trained, that one was the one where if I didn't pay attention to it at all times, it's just gone. Where other skills, I noticed I could keep them a little bit longer and they wouldn't kind of decrease as much. Um, and then, of course, strength training, that one just feels like the last longest. I had a very similar experience, almost exactly the same as you, Philip, with, with the oh. one-arm handstand. It was, yeah, just the natural progression. Okay, you can do a two-arm handstand for 60-plus seconds. Okay, what's, what's the next move? And I fell into the exact same trap in a way as you, where I started to invest myself into a movement that I wasn't sure how much was actually required to attain yeah. the skill. Yeah. So same as you took me over one and a half years of mm-hmm. maybe five to six days a week of yeah. a couple of hours working on the one arm handstand. And after a while, after achieving it, I'm sure you came to the same conclusion as me. It was like, okay, I enjoyed that process. It was challenging, <laughs> but geez, the, the cost in terms of time invested relative to the to the end outcome wasn't wasn't a huge return and it didn't have a big transfer to other things no it's it's actually really specific you would you would think it might have like you know some more transfer to something else but i found it was actually a really specific skill that didn't have much transfer at all just like you said you you spend like a year and a half doing that and then afterwards you're like okay now what next um yeah not sure and oh, yeah. and by the way, uh, you can't actually even do um, other stuff because you have to maintain this one arm handstand that you got. That is a, a great point <laughs> because I found that as well because it took such a commitment to to keep doing it. And I just came to the realization, okay, I am not going to be teaching one arm handstands to people. Uh-huh. No one around me is doing one arm handstands. <laughs> what am I actually going for here? I'm going to be a general, which means I'm going to be kind of good at everything. It's like, no, 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 no. You're not going to be like, no, doing a one arm handstand press and then going and having a, a 60 inch vertical jump and then running a hundred meter dash in like nine seconds. <laughs> it's like, that's not how that works. This comes back to what Philip was saying at the start, where you've only got a finite amount of energy to put into something, rest and recover. Even if you took all the enhancement in the world, had the perfect training, perfect sleep, all of that, 
it just send too many conflicting messages to your body and it just would be impossible. I feel like we're telling people certain things like Santa's not real right now. <laughs> no, I wish someone had just burst that bubble from me earlier. I mean, could you imagine if someone had told oh, me and you about the one arm handstand before we started working on it? They're like, hey, by the way, you're not going to be able to maintain that. I would, that would have saved us like years and years that- of time. That's why these podcasts are so valuable and people really enjoy the long, unfiltered content because they're getting a look into the inside of years of, of trial and tribulation and yeah. perspective, which, yeah. I, I love it. I mean, if I, if I can just help, you know, a couple of people not to make the same mistakes and like, no, not saying that the way I trained was completely mistake. If I, if I had wanted to, if someone wants to do that, great. No problem with that. It's just, I don't want anyone to do that, but not know what's going to happen. So like, if I don't want someone to, to do learn a one-arm handstand and then be like, oh, I didn't know I had to keep training it. I thought I was going to train it one time and then have it for the rest of my life. It's like that, that's what's sad for me to watch. And the truth that I really want to get across to people is even if you see someone doing a one-arm handstand, they're incredibly muscular, they're strong on their compound movements, they've got good mobility. They are cycling their training in different blocks and likely taking photos and videos to document that. They are not, especially if they're getting to a high standard, they are not doing that all at once. Yes, yes. Oh, that is so true. I, I'm looking back on it now. You know, I realized that because we, we would do the same thing. We would, tr- we would do a movement for like a year and then next year do another movement next year do another movement so if someone were to look at that they might be like wow they do a lot of movements all the time it's like no 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 no, i can't i don't have the time in the day to fit all those in one day it's just like i do one for a block i'm done with that i do another one for a block but if you look at the instagram at that point you know you might see like oh they do all these different movements at one time in one day where they have the time i don't have the time why is range of motion so important for strength training oh i i like it because it's like when you're using that full range of motion i know you're getting a stretch at the same time um, which is awesome because you're improving mobility. So again, that's the whole like training smarter and harder. Like, might as well get two for one. And um, I don't know how legit this theory is, but there's that theory out there where like if you stretch a muscle and you contract at the same time, you can help improve the hypertrophy response to it and the gains there. So it's like, all right, if you're going to train, take it through that full range of motion and get those gains, right? Like why, why shorten it? I agree. Definitely. That's the best way to, if there is one, to get the best of all worlds. You're, you're yeah. building muscle, you're building full range strength, which in turn increases joint mobility. And some say that doing longer eccentrics at extended muscle lengths helps to add sarcomeres in series and increase the, the fascicle length of the muscles. So you're, you're getting actual neuromuscular and actual tissue changes with those long range movements. Absolutely. I, that's like, I know I, you might as well get the full, the full package of the games. And I, I, one of the things I always say too, is like, if I train my full range, I know that the partial range will be, will get stronger. But if I train the partial range, I don't know if the full range will get stronger. So if I take that squat down only like, you no know, one fourth, I don't know if the full range motion is going to get bigger. And I really don't want to like, you know, say that I squat a thousand pounds and someone be like, Hey, we'll take it to the ground and see what happens. Like, Oh, now with that, Phil, how important is tempo? 
I think people make, need to make sure they're not doing a repetition where they're counting one rep as you know one second up and one second down, and then equating that to a rep where they're going up in one second and down in four seconds because those are two different reps at that point. I think another important factor, and I'd say one of the ones I focus on the most is telling people, you know, when you're lowering down with something, make sure that you are kind of lowering control because I don't know the exact physics equation. I'm not good at physics. I didn't get into that class in school. I was terrible at math. But when you add load plus gravity and speed and you drop down, that's a lot more load than you might have intended to be carrying. So if I have 100 pounds in the bar, but I'm dropping down to the bottom of my squat, that's a hundred times whatever the speed is, the mathematical thing is going on around my head. I can't, I don't understand it. Like the, the, one of the biggest things with tempo is probably just keeping safe during eccentrics, honestly. That's the best possible outcome that you can focus on because you're maximizing tissue tension in your muscles, but you're also minimizing joint strain because those yeah. that, those that do more of a ballistic eccentric when they're focusing purely on performance and getting as much as they can out of the movement might not be as sustainable an approach long-term. If you can do a slow rep with control with a heavy load, then you'll have the ability to do explosive reps, but vice yeah. versa, not always the case. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. The slow grinding ones, you'll be able to do that every time. Then if you want to add speed and power to it, great. It'll be easier. The learning curves are not going to be as quick, right? No, 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 exactly. It's like, I'd, I'd rather do it in the worst possible situation and have my strength there than to like have someone say, well, can you do it like this? And then be like, no, I can't. Now you've mentioned a few times in our podcast so far, the term accommodating resistance. How do you apply that to bodyweight training and calisthenics? So we, we, what we do is we basically will, I'll take like a, a chin up, for example, like a, one of our movements is the mixed grip chin up. So you'll grab the ring or the bar, whatever you're using with one arm and That'd be the working hand. And then the other hand might will face uh, pronated, the palm facing away from you. And that'll be the assisting hand. So I'm basically going to take this working hand. I'm going to pull as hard as I can with that working arm. And when I get stuck at certain points, the assisting hand's going to give me just enough assistance to get moving through that range of motion. You could almost imagine it like if some guy at the gym put up too much weight on the barbell. Uh, and then ask you to spot him during a bench press. And you're like, yeah, I'll spot you, but I'm going to give you the minimal amount of assistance <laughs> to get to the moves motion. So his rep's going to last like a whole minute of that rep. <laughs> He's not going to be able to do another rep ever again. And that's what we do with the company resistance. And we noticed that if you use that, it's really awesome because, again, that will make it so you don't have to train that often. The intensity will be so high and the time and attention will be so high that you can get away with training that like once a week, come back again, do it next week, and you'll have made gains. Perfect. So it's the concept of using a full range of motion, but modifying the intensity at yeah. the sticking point or the most difficult portion. Not the entire range of motion. So even when you even when you are going back down, for example, you know, we're stronger eccentrically than we are concentrically. So when we're lowering down, the other hand would help even less. If you can take it off at certain points, you might take it off. When you get to the middle point, it's a little bit hard. You might put it back on and then, you know, keep going through that however you can. But we're just trying to make sure that that entire full range of motion is maxly intense the entire time. And if you find a point in the movement where it ever gets lighter, 
well, then that's when you're going to start over again, but you're going to add weight around the waist and then perform that same mix with chin up again, spotting yourself as minimally as possible. With respect to body weight progressions versus weighted calisthenics, what is your preferred approach? I'm much more a fan of body weight um, progressions, but I also have had people who just say, no, I just prefer to do weighted progressions. And it's like, well, if you just prefer, like, you know, like at the end of the day, it's training. So like, I'm not going to, I'm not dogmatic about it. However you like to train is the way you like to train. I have I've had some people who say like, I really like weighted chin-ups. So what I tell them is like, okay, well, if you want to do a weighted chin-up instead, what you can do is if you, again, um, want to use a company resistance, you get a partner and you pull with the added weight and they will put their hands around your waist and pull down as you pull against them. And they'll basically help you or resist you as needed. And you can kind of modify around like that. Or another way you could do it is you could add too much weight and then you pull and then they give you just a tiny bit of assistance and make you grind the way up and the way down. So the method would work for weighted calisthenics as well. It's just a matter of what you do. Me personally, I prefer body weight um, over weighted, but both we can, we can get gains out of either of them. That's the biggest thing too, Philip, the having enjoyment from whatever type of training that you do almost trumps the quote unquote optimal because the style that you enjoy, you have more fun doing it. You're going to put the effort in required to bring the training intensity high enough to stimulate and grow. So don't, don't be afraid of going with something that might not be as, as popular, but if it's something that you enjoy, that is always the best solution. For the people that prefer doing a body weight only approach, the challenge most of us face is that the training is subjective. It's very difficult to understand if we're progressing from week to week or month to month. How do we make our training objective? And what do you find is the best way for doing so? I have found that, well, any body weight movement that you're doing, if you track the eccentric, you can always see if you're making progress, which is awesome. So if you're doing like, you know, a planche push-up, um, you can track to see how good your eccentric is. Are you are you able to do an eccentric in an advanced tuck? Great. Or are you able to do an eccentric in an advanced tuck, um, but now you can do it down, you can lower down slower? Awesome. Are you doing, you know, uh, one-arm chin eccentrics? Okay, awesome. Are you able to lower down slower? Great. Or are you able to now, oh, before you were lowering down, now you're finding you can actually pause, pause, pause. Well, we know that we're isometrically stronger than we are eccentrically. So if we're able to pause at certain points, great. You know, you've gotten stronger there. So stuff like that. I found that if you, might, if you track the eccentrics and if you see when you're able to do isometrics, you can really see if you're making gains on those, uh, those movements or not. So with that awareness internally of the movement quality, would you combine that with, say, filming it to see to see visually as well? Yeah, I, I definitely do. And I, I keep track of that for our trainees, too, because you know, the trainees will be like, oh, man, I can't tell if I'm making progress. And I have to pull out like, a protractor with um, like the plants and everything. And I say, look at those angles here. See how long, how your shoulder is further ahead of your hands? And they're like, oh, I see it now. It's like, oh, see how your hips are more open? It's like, yeah. So I have to do that all the time. Um with uh, with especially the planche and the, and the lever, since those are probably, I think, of all the movements, it's like there's so many degrees between a tuck planche and a full planche that 
it's hard for people sometimes to see. And then for the handstand push-up and the um the one arm ten, we actually played around. If if you ever gotten like a force sensor, you can actually attach that to your ring, and you can see, for example, how much your assisting hand is pulling on the force sensor, and it'll give you like a numerical value for how much it is. Or if you put it on your ring for the handstand push-up, if you're doing like a pike push-up, you can tell how much weight is on your hand. So you could track that number. You could record like a have a camera recording the the, the, the force sensor. And you can just you know, say like, at what point you are in the movement and track to see if that point is going up. And if it is, then you know you're making gains. I know you guys are a big fan of drop sets and extended sets. Could you explain to people how you go about using those? Oh, yeah. So like, basically, as you start to fatigue during the set, you can just keep the set going by just reducing the amount of resistance you're using. So, for example, if I'm doing like a um, planche push-ups, Maybe I start off in a straddle, but as I'm fatiguing, I could bring it into like an advanced tuck. If I fatigue more, I can bring it into a tuck, and that can let me uh, make the intensity, well, sorry, not the intensity, but the, um, the volume of that movement higher, the time retention higher. You can make it more like a, a deeper inroad so that you can finish your training sooner. So we use that with people who like, are looking for like you know, hypertrophy a bit more. We might have them do kind of a drop set on their last set to kind of really burn it out. Um, I don't use them as much for people who are working on strength. A lot of times what I have those kind of people do is I have them use a lot of rest pause training to the point, sometimes I even have people do like the concentric, I'll have them rest a little bit and then have them do the eccentric after they rest a little bit to get the highest peak force on each of them. But with the drop sets, I'll use those for people who want to gain the mass and stuff. If you're having a bad session, don't freak out, go back home take some time off and then come back and rock it so like i've only had in the past three years two bad sessions and both times they were from um i did my workout and then i did a sprint training like two days before my next workout and i didn't recover enough time so i'm I'm not going to lie it was difficult i was in the gym i was working out i was i put my last workout weight on the bar for the back squat and I added a little bit extra and I noticed I could only eccentric it. I couldn't actually squat it. And I was like, oh, I'm having a bad workout. And I really wanted to keep doing that workout. But I told my wife, I was like, Martina, if you see me do another set, call me out on it. Um, but I came back two days later and rocked it. Just like that set, the weight that I had on at that point felt super light. It was just flying up and down at that point. That's great advice. I just want to get a look into your psyche in a sense as to how you deal with that. Because it's something that we all, we all face. Now, I'm not sure if your opinion on this has changed over time, mm-hmm. Phil, but I've seen over the years, you tend to gravitate more towards uh, dynamic movements through a full range as opposed mm-hmm. to static holds. Is that still something that you believe to this day? I really like dynamic movements with a pause near the top of the movement. So when I do my planche push-ups, I push up, I do a pause at the top, and then I do my eccentric. Or, you know, if I do a front lever, I start my front lever, I roll to the top, and I come back down, I might do a pause at the end. So I really like dynamic movements with the pause. But then again, my my um, 
when, remember when I was younger, I, I had 100% confidence in everything I said. <laughs> now I'm older and I realize how stupid I was. So if someone tells me that they want to achieve a static hold world record, guess what we're going to be doing? We're going to be doing some static holds. I can see the merit in your approach because it comes back to the overall philosophy of training smarter, not harder, doing less to get a comparable result. And yes. those dynamic movements through a full range with a pause is getting the best of all worlds. You're training the full range. So you're getting joint strength in all of the different angles. Yeah. But what I like about your point in particular is the static hold at the end. Even if yeah. it's only momentarily, it's mm -hmm. getting that time under tension in that position, which is where people just do plain static holds. With the fast sprints and slow walks, why is this something that the mindful mover is so passionate about? Oh, yeah, we were doing that for a while. So actually, I don't do the, um, the sprints anymore. I wasn't that sprint drop set. Um, now I did the when I figured out how to make the the workout with the quad set thingy, I noticed my heart was getting high enough where I was like, I don't need the sprints anymore. But back in the day, I was doing um the, the sprint drop set, and I still have people do it if they want to get their heart rate maximally high, where basically they find like some patch of grass or a hill preferably. They sprint as long as they can, and they basically do that thing that Homer Simpson did in that episode of The Simpsons where he's running as fast as possible, and he starts like, jogging then like crawling and then like he just dies <laughs> and i've noticed that if you handle that extreme where you're sprinting as fast as possible and if you go from some like you no know, long distance walks every now and then then the middle ground tends to handle itself so we did a test where we were basically mixing those two methods together and i noticed that the time that could spend the time it would take me to like you know walk a mile got shorter like it went down like two minutes so i i was like okay great if i can work on those two extremes and get the middle zone kind of for free, I'll take it. Now, again, I don't think I'm going to become a marathoner with that. And my goal is not to become a marathoner. So if your goal is to be a marathoner, you should probably go run marathons. But for the person who's just trying to get some gains and get their heart healthy and everything, the lungs working, then I think that method of doing some sort of really fast, intense sprint type work with some slow lungs as walks will probably get you, you know, pretty decent. What is your advice on taking rest days? Because we know it is very important, but it's something that most of us really struggle. We end up taking a rest day, which is an active recovery day, which turns into <laughs> us setting personal bests. I think there's two really big components of it. One, you have to find a hobby that you enjoy for on rest day, because if, you, if your hobby is training, okay, but training is fun, we just we can't train all day. That's, we don't have enough energy. So if you don't have a hobby, you're going to be bored on rest days. And what's going to happen when, you know, there's that saying, idle hands are the devil's play things. You, when you get bored, you are going to end up <laughs> probably, like you're, you're going to close your eyes, you'll wake up, and you'll be in the middle of a CrossFit Metcon. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, how did I get here? I know, so, I've done it again. And I also think it's good to have something that you also um, are working towards that's not training. So, like, a lot of us train because we want that sense of accomplishment. You know, we, we humans, we like to work hard and then enjoy the fruits of our labor. So, I think it's important to remember that you can do that with something else that's not training. And, in fact, you should do that with something else that's not training. That way, you're always, you know, feeling accomplished. And with the other one, you're always having fun. 
you you never feel empty that day. So I think if you get those two things, rest days can become very, very enjoyable. But if you're missing one of those, you're either going to be bored, you're going to be unaccomplished. And if you are either of those things, you're going to find yourself back in the gym really quickly and uh, probably maxing out on a deadlift or something like that. Just having that time off, it makes you appreciate the training time that you do have. So on a more consistent and sustainable basis, you're going to be enjoying your training more. You're going to be getting better results and just take those damn rest days and fill yeah. it with other stuff because it will, it'll transform all elements of your life. It's so it's, it's just like you said, you know, it will, it will refuel your training. Just, I, I love that you said that because I think that's exactly what happens. You know, no matter how motivated you are, you, you can't really be like, you know, physiology. If you keep working out, you're going to eventually get tired and eventually you'll start to notice that your language changes to like, today I have to do legs. But if you take some rest days and you get that recovery, let yourself you know recover and you let yourself get restored, it'll probably change to today I get to do legs and it'll be enjoyable again. I, I noticed that happened to myself where you know, I would train before with the higher frequencies and I would eventually start feeling like I had to force myself through those sessions. But when I would take some time off, you know, you oftentimes not on purpose, you know, maybe because my wife forced me to take a vacation for once or something like that. By the time I came back, I was like, I feel ready to train. I feel like I want to train again. And then, of course, I would start training too much and then it would go away again. There's two situations where you adopt that mindset of I have to train. It's, yeah. as you said, you're training too often, you're too fatigued. So your body is, in a way, subliminally telling you You've yeah. got to just change your approach. That's that's number one. And number two would be doing a style of training that you don't enjoy. So yeah. may, maybe yeah. you read that, oh, everyone needs to learn the one-arm handstand. You're like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so so we've got to do it. And you're there dragging yourself to your, to your two and a half hour session. So <laughs> that's going to highlight those deficiencies in, um, in your approach. That is so true. That is so true. Those two things will definitely take turn. You're get the train into hack train and instant and we can laugh about this because if we're telling the truth it's um something philip and i have both uh, done firsthand so we're vulnerably saying that to you guys so that you can um learn from our mistakes <laughs> yes please do. please don't make the same ones <laughs> i want to ask you philip about nutrition because i've seen over the years you've dived deep into so many different philosophies what have you settled on these days as a sustainable nutrition approach so what I tend to do is just basically, if it is real food, I'll eat it. <laughs> so, so that's like, you know, meats, vegetables, nuts, uh, fruits, all those sorts of things, rice, I will eat that and I don't really worry about it. Now, um, me personally, I am not one of those people who's very moderate when it comes to their sweets intake. You know, if I have... Um, a donut, no, some donuts, and it says a serving size is one donut, and I say no, 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 no. The serving size is the entire box, and that's what I'm gonna have, maybe plus the box afterwards. So when it comes to like you no know, junk food or sweets and everything, I, I don't eat any of these all of those at all. I have trainees though who you know, I give the same thing with their diet. Say so make your diet base it around real food, and then if you do like to eat sweets, I tell them you know just make sure you eat it in a way that you don't end up like blowing out your whole diet in one day over you know, a box of donuts. For some people that, that looks like making sure that 
they only eat sweets after they eat their uh, their food. So that way they're not like, you know, hungry right afterwards. That's great. Some people, it means like, you know, they have to go out and eat it only outside the house and never inside the house. That's yeah. fine. So I, I find where, that, where those happy mediums are for everybody. But I basically do it like that. I base everything around real food. And then um, I, uh, I know some people like to live and, like, you know, enjoy other stuff, too. I'd say, you know, I just find where they're able to do that in a decently healthy and moderate way and then have them work with that. I find our approach is very similar in that respect, mm-hmm. Philip, because it's the the whole foods are going to be the most satiating, the most yes. nutrient dense. They're going to make you feel the most level throughout the day. So not only physically, but also cognitive performance is going to be more consistent. Yes. And it's interesting, man. I've had this conversation with so many people over the years and it's either the abstinence or all out approach yeah. moderation yeah is probably the hardest thing that all of us struggle with. And just for those that are listening, be aware that you are not alone. It's either (laughs) all or nothing for most things, for most people. I fully agree. Like I I say, it's like, you know, you have one of two things. You have abstinence or absolutely all of them. (laughs) It's like like absolutely all of the junk food. You know what I mean? That's, That's how I am. That's why I just, I can't, I know I can't stop myself at that point. So I'm, I don't even bother. The only time I've ever, like, I ever have a suite nowadays is if I go all the way to, like, another state across the country, like, someplace really far away, at which point I'll have whatever treats they have there. Because I know when I get back home, I won't be able to get that same thing at all. And yeah. I don't eat anything that I can find back in my hometown. I only eat something that is specific to that area that I can't, like, ever find back at where I am. And then I'm like, okay, that's fine. That could really rationalize in your mind so that you could mm-hmm. switch switch gears. It's like, okay, I could only have that insanely yeah. delicious piece of food in that yeah. one context. And then you like you shift it when you're back at home. Well, yeah, when you come back home, you literally just can't find it. It's like, oh, I, I, w- I want to eat that again, but I can't get it. So what am I going to do? Am I going to buy a plane ticket and fly across the country to get that? Well, <laughs> Probably a more realistic way of doing that for most people is what you um, recommend to your clients. It's not having it in the house, but it's yeah. it's used as a social thing at a restaurant where it's in more of a controlled context, controlled portions. Whereas we all know if you go to the supermarket and you have it in your house, it's going down, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, it is definitely. You are just one step away. I mean, the willpower is just so finite, like, you might resist it well at a certain, for a certain time, but eventually you're going to get hungry and you're going to find yourself at the end, like a bottom of a box of those. That's, that's another really good point. I'm glad you raised that. It's the willpower concept. Yeah. So I'm sure that you've had this conversation and those listening with other people, they say, oh, you've got a lot of willpower and, and self-control when it comes to your nutrition. But as you just said, Philip, it's not really the case because mm-hmm. you're creating your environment where you take willpower out because we're not immune to that. If we only had access to, as you said, good example, the donuts, then we'd eat it. If it was on, if it was was on the desk, right where we're doing this podcast, Philip and I would be gone. (laughs) Absolutely. I want that right now. I'd be be doing a whole box of them. Like that's exactly what it, like if your setup requires willpower, you're probably not going to, to last. Like, your setup needs to require no willpower to resist. That's that's the way that it'll get done. But once it requires willpower, and then 
the worst part, even if you are able to resist it, where is that willpower going to? Like, that's some willpower that could be going someplace else that could be some used on something that you actually need to use it for. I know that you're a fan of fasting. How have you mm-hmm. found that changed your overall well-being and training over the years? Oh, goodness, I felt I felt great. Like, when I started fasting, um, the first time I tried it, I tried working out fasted, and I was like, this feels amazing. I'm never going back. And I still haven't. And it's been, like, <laughs> two or three years, I think, now. It feels amazing. So we fast basically, like, 18, 16, 18 hours a day. So we just basically eat during the day, and then we don't eat at nighttime. Um, and it works really nicely. I feel I feel great during it. Um and I noticed it also helped my sleep a lot. It's like I fast a couple of hours before bed. So I don't feel like my stomach's like rumbling the entire time when I'm trying to like get my, my, my sleep in. Uh, it's, I, wish I, I just wish I learned about it earlier. Likewise, Philip, that's something that I've been doing for years as well for a few reasons. It's mainly the, the convenience of it as well, because yes. we take a similar approach in the fact that we wake up first thing in the morning, we're in a fasted, uh, fasted state, but we've mm-hmm. still got nutrients from the previous day. Smash a coffee, smash a training session. It's just so much more convenient of not having to get in your six, seven meals a day and yes. nutrient timing and digestion. Uh, I love that you brought up that point too about convenience because you know people ask me, what's the biggest benefit of fasting? I say, I mean, honestly, two things I can think of that are really objective that I can actually measure. One is I don't have to spend that much time eating and cooking. <laughs> and two, my wallet, you know, has experienced a lot of hypertrophy. The caveat that I'll put to that, though, is this is a good recommendation for people that are looking for that really general approach that's going to tick that 80-20 principle. If you were someone who was a competitive athlete, a competitive bodybuilder or something, there is research to suggest that that four meals a day might have a a transient benefit for um, just constant muscle protein synthesis. But that's probably a debate for another time. Talk to me about supplements. What do you believe in? What do you think is a waste of time? Oh, so man, I used to take all of the supplements. Like I could have started a supplement store out of my own, uh, out of my own cupboard. You know, like it was, it was a lot of stuff. Um, these days I take vitamin C, iodine. So I'm my tongue. Oh, I take vitamin D during the winter. Um, during the summer, I just go outside, but during the winter, I, I take vitamin D. Um, and I take magnesium. Um, I have a topical one that I put on that I really like. So I don't take a lot of stuff anymore. I used to take like the, I used to take the, the beta alanine, the BCAAs, the, the creatine, um, all different forms. So once again, more of a minimalist approach, the less is more type of, type of way with just sound nutrition covering the basis. It, I, I, that's what I try to use. I try to just, I try to just get it from my food and I just try to fill in the gaps where the supplements, like, you know, what helps. Like, so for example, I don't eat, um, seaweed or anything like that. Um, so since I don't, I try to get, I, I use supplemental iodine to make up for that. Or like, uh, if the sun isn't coming out as much, like here, it's kind of winter time now. So we're not really getting much vitamin D. So I'll supplement with vitamin D for the winter time. Then once it's back to spring, I'll stop doing that. I'll just go back outside shirtless and everything. Um, or like vitamin C, I sometimes will take a little bit uh, extra on training days, and uh, I notice that that helps me with my chronic condition, helps me like you know not feel like um 
uh, also colitis having the flare. So that that works really nicely. Or like the magnesium, I've noticed I just I sleep so much better since taking that. So I, I've used that. What would you say if you could give advice to your younger self? It's like, who? there's so many different things I would say, but I think the one that would cover the most amount of things is just to be willing to test doing less. Just, you know, start off with the small stuff. Instead of trying to maximize everything, start off with something small because once you start off with that, you'll know what you need. And not only that, you won't have as much FOMO. If you know that, like, you know, oh, hey, three sets works. Okay, I feel good now. I don't have to worry about, like, you know, what if I can't finish my 12-set workout? Well, I know if I get three in, I'll be making gains. Great. So it is, if you start off with less, it'll be so much easier on your, your mind. You won't have to stress out as much, and you won't uh, immediately jump to adding more than you need to. That is excellent advice because you can always add more if you started at a lower base compared to trying to do as much as possible at the start. Yes, yes, yes. I think just that's being okay with that. And it's hard to because there's a lot of FOMO, you know, in the heart there where that makes you want to add more. But it's like, uh, you know, just, just give it a try. Start off with a little bit. You can, again, you can always add more. And what's the worst that's going to happen? You'll probably like, if you tried too little, Maybe for one week, you maintain, you probably won't even lose gains. So probably just maintain. And the next week, you'll add a little bit more and you'll start gaining again. It's, it's a week. The last question I'd like to ask you is what is your favorite book that you've read regarding training? Oh, that is definitely Body by Science by Doug McGuff and John Little. That was really, really a fun read because it, like, I don't use the actual protocol that they use in the book, but I just liked the general concepts in it where they were showing evidence to show how, you know, training once a week can work if you do it right. You know, they, they kind of they kind of just give a, a different view where in a lot of the fitness industry, you know, it's about using frequency. They're like, hey, let's try using lower frequency. And in this case, really high volume and seeing how that works with less frequent training. So I love that. And I also like their concept where they basically are saying, that your body can't really, sorry, your heart and lungs can't really tell too much difference between what you're doing when it comes to cardio. So if you are running, you can run for cardio. You can bike for cardio, but you can also lift for cardio. So I really like those two concepts. Of course, again, if you want to be a marathon runner, you have to marathon run. But I like those two concepts there because it kind of just was really just different perspective. It's really interesting to read and think, you know, hmm, maybe I should try training less. Let me try seeing how my cardio reacts with this as well. But it was it was a good book. I loved it a lot. Perfect, brother. I think we're going to keep it there. That's a lot of information for people to absorb and apply to their training. I'm going to provide the Mindful Mover uh, social media stuff in the show notes. If you guys want to check out Philip and Martina's philosophy when it comes to all things calisthenics and strength training. So cheers for your time, Philip. Thank you for having me on. I loved it. It was a, it was a blast. Thanks so much. See you guys. Fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.